Love that family, Von Glenn, right? Good stuff. I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible with you this morning to go to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't own one, we have free Bibles in the back. I'd love for you to pick one up when you leave this morning. They're sitting on that brown table back there. Maybe you've got it on your phone or you've got a hard copy. If, if you do, go to Matthew 18. And if you don't have one with you right now, you can watch along on the screen. I want to pray with you first before we step into it. We have an item of praise this morning. Um, specifically, this church, uh, along with some other area churches, and individuals that brought Operation Christmas Child boxes in is responsible for sending 2,700 boxes out this last week. Pretty amazing, right? Um, Set an all-time high record in that this uh, New Hope as a church family put together 1,400 of those 2,700 boxes. So that's just incredible, right? So... Here's how I'd like to pray with you about that. Um, First of all, that as those go out, that they would accomplish the purpose for which God intended. Because it's not about just the toys or the items that were in the Christmas boxes for the children. It's about the gospel that goes with it. The toys are just toys. But what God can do with that in the life of a child around the world is absolutely stunning. So I want to pray with you about that. And kudos to Bill Opland and his team and his wife, Mary, for putting all of that together and organizing. Really well done, Bill. Really grateful for that. And then as we step into this passage, let me invite you to pray with us about that too, how God's going to speak to us this morning. Would you join me in that? Father, I thank you for how you use praise music and worship music and the old hymns to recenter us. Regardless of what we might have been involved in this last week and the activities that took us to maybe distances, um, you, you use things like this to prepare us to put our heart in the place where we can hear from you. And now your word is open and, and we're ready to dive into this passage. And we know specifically you want to speak. You've spoken through your written word and we ask that you would allow it to come to life this morning. Use it in that way, God. We ask in the same way you would use your word that's enclosed in each one of those gift boxes that went out to children in all parts of the world that we could never possibly visit on our own. Father, we pray that you would use it for the purpose in which it was even put together and that you would bring many children into an understanding of who Jesus is. And one day, perhaps God will meet them in eternity. We'll know them as individuals who came to Christ because of the work that you allowed us to do. We look forward to that, Father. And now we ask that you would use this time together to sharpen us, that you would push on our heart. Where you need to make correction, Father, we invite you to do so. Where you need to strengthen us, God, we ask you to do that. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. To me, one of the most spectacular, probably the most beautiful thing about the gospel message is that God not only planned it all together, but that he personally executed it. He didn't send someone else. He could have, but he didn't. God himself carried it out. So he altogether planned it, and then he personally came to this planet and carried it out. He didn't send someone else. And in response to that, when God comes to our planet and says, I not only love you, and I extend that love to you, I also give you forgiveness if you're going to receive it. And for those who do, God in response says, now, now that you know what my love is like, now that you've received my forgiveness, 
I expect you to do exactly the same thing for your neighbor. I expect it for you to do that to those who surround you. Love your neighbor in the same way that I've loved you. There's a moment in time when Jesus is being challenged by individuals who are trying to figure out whether or not he actually even knows the Word of God the way that he claims. And so some lawyers gather around him. They think that they can pin him down, and they ask him some hard questions. And one of them is captured for you in Matthew chapter 22. Look with me on the screen. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You notice as you read that, that the Pharisee never even asked him what the second commandment was. Jesus just launched into it on his own because he wanted to drive home the point of what he was going for. It's not enough just to love the Lord your God. If you don't have love for your fellow man, what is that? So here we ask ourselves this question. What does that look like? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? And who's my neighbor? How do I actually carry that out? Especially in light of where you and I have been, church, in Romans chapter 12 in the last number of weeks. Paul writes, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What about Jesus when somebody does me harm? What about when somebody brings evil my way? How am I supposed to respond in that setting? How do I return evil with good? Let me remind you of Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is such a crucial component of where we're at in our journey, church. In the midst of where we're at in Romans, because it's all about, if you want to take the book of Romans and boil it down to one succinct statement, that's what it is. God didn't return evil to us for the evil that we showed to others and to Him when we were sinners and separated from Him. He extended love to us. He didn't overcome the evil on us. He returned it with love. So this, this is a crucial component and it's really relevant today. How are you and I overcome by evil? Well, we talked about this two weeks ago. It's not the circumstances that we're going through, even though we think it is. That's not what overcomes us with evil. It's how we actually respond to the circumstances. Those things that can crush us, we think, are putting us down. Remember what I referred to a couple weeks ago? Paul wrote that he was being pressed in on every side. Circumstances were apparently overwhelming him, but he said, nevertheless, we are more than conquerors. He recognizes exactly that the goal has already been won for him. Here's how you and I are overcome by evil. We're overcome by evil when we're diverted from the path that God set us on, when we're taken off course from the direction that He wants us to go on, and that happens when you receive wounds, and some of you have received wounds this morning, and they're deep, and they've gashed you, and you've been sliced open. And if that's you, I think God wants you to hear what we're about to tackle this morning. The reality is we have to acknowledge this reality. You and I bear wounds, and we bear a heaviness when a wrong is committed against us. How are we supposed to respond to that? Because those wounds, they can stop us from becoming everything that God intends. And here's how they start out. Some start out remarkably small. 
It can be a poorly timed comment from a trusted friend. You can be left out of plans of your social circle. People didn't include you in things that they were doing. Some are big enough to make us stumble. There can be a reality that a family member could say to you, you're never going to amount to anything. You're just like your father. Or some are so huge, they're painfully large. A spouse betrays us. A business partner takes advantage of us. And we find ourselves incredibly wounded, and those emotional slices open up gaping wounds that seem to never heal. Matthew 18, written in its context, is called a relational chapter because it's all about Jesus telling us how to deal with relationships here on earth. So you find Peter asking a very direct question of Jesus in Matthew 18. Let's start with verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Stop right now and ask yourself this question, whether or not you've read that verse a hundred times in your life or it's the first time you've ever seen it. Why would such a young man ask such a weighty question? If you didn't know this, most of the disciples were very young. Some of them were teenagers. In that culture, 18, 19, 20, Peter's a married man. He's probably, though, only in his early 20s. Why would such a young man ask such a weighty question? Well, very likely he has received some kind of a relationship blow. Something has come hard against him. And he knows human nature. He understands the human capacity to offend someone and then extend forgiveness only to be offended again. And so he's asking, does forgiveness have a limit, Jesus? Because if evil is overcoming me and it's been done to me, how am I supposed to respond? So he's suggesting seven times? Why does he even say that? Well, because in his culture, the rabbis were teaching three times. Three times you extend forgiveness and not a fourth time. Watch this quote on the screen from Rabbi Ben Yehuda, who lived in the first century. If a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive him. Sounds like the soup Nazi, right? No more forgiveness for you. <laughs> Why is it being taught that way? Well, they anchored in some misunderstanding of the Old Testament. So Peter thinks, I'm being really generous. Seven times, Jesus, should, should I go seven times? No, granted person who offends you should be forgiven. The relationship should be restored. But what about this reality? What if they fall over and over and over and over and over and over and over? It just wears you out even thinking about it, doesn't it? And here's what's going on with Peter. He's thinking like the Pharisees because the Pharisees are under the law and the law counts the law calculates, the law adds up, but grace doesn't add, grace doesn't calculate. Human nature keeps account, it keeps calculating, but grace does not calculate. Amen, New Hope? That's, that's a good praise to God, that God doesn't calculate the wrongs. You're under grace, there's no calculation, there's no limit to his forgiveness. So Jesus' response to Peter in this moment is absolutely fascinating because it's one, it's very typical of a rabbi talking to his student in the first century. 
but there's more going on here than just that. Watch with me, Matthew 18. Jesus answered, Peter, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now understand, he's not speaking of the law here. Jesus is not talking about limits. 77s doesn't mean 490 times. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus is actually talking about not being overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. Now imagine how Jesus' response stuns His students who are listening. Imagine the shock if your entire life you've heard you forgive people three times, but after that, they're out. No more forgiveness. And then Jesus comes along and says, uh, time out. 25 times what the rabbis teach you. Here's the background. It's common for a student in the first century to approach their rabbi and ask a question knowing that the rabbi is going to return with one of two responses. Either he's going to respond with a question, which is called the Jewish art of questioning, or he's going to respond with an indirect reference to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. For them, it was just the Word of God because the New Testament hadn't been written. So Peter's expecting Jesus is going to respond that way. He knows that that response is coming back to him. So Peter's heart is really ripe for the story Jesus is about to tell. So you have to understand where this story actually stems from and why Jesus responds with 77s. And here's the background. If you go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, the very first murder on planet Earth, we're told, was Cain killing his brother Abel. And when Cain kills Abel, God shows up on the scene and he says to Cain, what have you done? Your brother's blood screams to me from the ground. And so as a result, the punishment that is given to Cain is that he's pushed out from society. No longer will the ground yield the fruit of the harvest for you, Cain. You will be a vagabond the remainder of your life. You will wander in the wilderness. Cain's response is, my punishment is too much to bear, God. When people see me, they will kill me. And God says, I'll put a mark upon you, and they will not kill you. Watch with me on the screen. Genesis 4.15, but the Lord said to him, not so, if anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Now fast forward just a few more verses. And Cain had a great grandson. His name was Lamech. And Lamech is thinking about his great-grandfather because Cain's great-grandson Lamech also did what his great-grandpa did. He murdered a man. And he turns to his wives and he says, I've murdered this man in self-defense. And if they take out vengeance upon me, look with me up on the screen, Genesis 4.24. If Cain, great-grandpa, is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. See, the rabbi has just taken this very ancient statement of revenge and he's translated it over to a statement of a relationship healing principle. That's what Jesus does. So in context, Jesus isn't saying 77 times and then you punch his lights out. No, actually what he's saying is you gotta show mercy magnified. Now if that's not clear for you, and apparently it wasn't for the first century crowd listening, Jesus had to break into a story to clarify what he was talking about, and that's what I wanna do with you. Let's go to the very short story that Jesus tells. It says this in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like, now stop right there. What you're looking at is God's taking a selfie here, right? 
This is a self-portrait. God's taking a picture. You want to see what I'm like? Whenever you find this in the New Testament and Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like, there's a selfie of God. He's going to paint a picture for you about what he's like. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he began the settlement of a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And remember who the king is, New Hope. The king in this case is God. And somebody's got a, a debt with God. Now let's just picture the size of the debt. If you're a student of the Bible and you know the Old Testament, there's a story about King David when the temple is being built, giving 3,000 talents of silver, 7,000 talents of gold, 10,000 talents combined. A talent was the largest unit of measurement in the ancient world. For the Greeks, there was no higher number associated with it. It's the word myrios, which means myriad in the English language. It's an incalculable number. Now, it's not possible for you and I to calculate accurately how much a coin in antiquity actually is worth in our currency. It's not necessary to make the point, but I know many of you are visual, and you need to see a visual. What is 10,000 talents? What does it look like? Well, the, the image that's going up on the screen for you is a visual of what it actually looks like. You're looking at $1 billion. So this individual has a debt of a billion in excess. These are stacks of $100 bills set on pallets, a billion dollars. So Jesus is making a really relevant story here for these individuals. He's got a massive debt. In our currency, we can see it that way. Now, this man has absolutely an unpayable debt. To what degree? Picture it this way. In the ancient Roman world, when they collected taxes, they collected it from provinces. Jesus lived in the region known as Samaria, Galilee, Judea, and Idumea, four provinces. Among those four provinces, Rome collected a tax every year to the degree of 900 talents. In other words, this man has a debt so large that it's equal to 11 years of taxes from the four-province region that Jesus lives in. It is immeasurable for him to pay it back. So in context, if we're putting this, the kingdom of heaven is like unto this, this is what God looks like, he's got an unpayable debt that represents the exact same debt that every one of us owes to God for our sin, something that is humanly unpayable. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us of the sin in our life, we're faced with the fact that we've got a sin debt that is humanly unpayable. You can't touch it. It's so mountainous. And Jesus recognizes that. So the very next verse expresses exactly what's going on. Go with me to the next one, Matthew 18, 24. Since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt, literally to be sold into debtor's prison. Now, selling the family here can't possibly pay the kind of debt we're talking about. A really good quality slave in the first century, they would sell for a denarii or for, for a, a talent, about 900 denarii. It's not possible you have to have 10,000 family members all getting the highest price on the human auction block, and they'd be sold for life. See, selling the family in this illustration is actually talking about how hopeless this man's situation is. 
There's no way to recover from it. Not that the king is going to get fair equity here. Next verse, verse 25, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. So he's not just guilty, right? You checking that? He's not just guilty. He's devastated. He offers no defense. That's why he falls to his knees and he's pleading because he knows he's condemned. Think of this like Romans, church. He's fallen short, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. He's sinned and he's fallen short. He can't measure up. The mountain of debt is so massive. Forgive me. I'll pay everything back. But it's absolutely foolish to think his debt can be paid back. Dare we say even prideful to think he could pay it back? Many humans fall into that trap thinking they can pay God back. You can't pay God back. One of the first indicators of someone who lacks a spirit of true forgiveness, as you're going to see that this guy actually has as the story unfolds, one of the first indicators is a haughty attitude. Go forward with me. What happens next is so stunningly simple, it seems unreal. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. First of all, church, how much wealth do you have to have to dismiss a billion dollars in debt, right? You ever heard the song, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills? That's your God. How wealthy do you have to be to say, I'll dismiss it? Because you asked, because you looked for mercy, I'm going to cancel your debt. And I want you to notice this. The king does not harass him for his foolish offer. <laughs> you idiots. Are you kidding me? You'd never be able to pay that back. No, there's no harassment going on. He doesn't berate him for getting into debt in the first place. What did you do? Like, how stupid are you? How, how did you spend a billion dollars? No, there's none of that going on. In this case, the king, who's in the kingdom of heaven, God, isn't berating him. Rather, the master actually shows compassion and forgiveness and releases the debt. Can you say merciful God, New Hope, with a capital M? That's a merciful God who doesn't shame you, but receives you and releases you. See, the moment a person acknowledges their sin, they don't try to explain it away or defend it, the, the moment they acknowledge it and they turn to the Savior, that mountain of debt is paid in full, amen? Amen. Happy Thanksgiving to us, right? There's a reason to be thankful. So there's two words and only two Greek words I'm giving you this morning. They jump out of that verse. They're in your notes this morning. You'll see them on the screen. But the very first one counterbalances the second one. The first one is this, splagnizomahi. You've heard me pronounce it before because it sounds like an Italian pasta dish, right? And yet what's going on is there's a gut ache here. To have the bowels yearn. You ever been so emotionally overwhelmed that your gut aches? We're told that's the king in the kingdom towards the people whom he extends mercy to. His gut aches, and it's counterbalanced by the second word. To the degree that he shows mercy, and the second Greek word is apaleu, and it means to free fully, to set at liberty. 
If you've been freed by Jesus Christ this morning, would you say amen? amen? Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. You just sang that. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You see the picture of God going on in this story? Now, that's on the spiritual level. Well, let's make it really practical since we're thinking of pallets stacked with billions of dollars. How great would it be if your mortgage office called you tomorrow and said, your debt has been released? I would love that, right? Would you not be yelling back on the phone, freedom, right? I would be. That's the sense of feeling this guy has. He's been completely released. It's as though somebody picked up the phone and called him and said, you don't have a mortgage anymore. You no longer have a debt with the king. See, I'm thinking when Jesus takes this selfie, he's smiling. Do you think of Jesus smiling? I think he does. And he smiles when he tells this part, I set you free. But then it turns really ugly. The story turns really ugly because of human nature. What happens next seems absolutely inconceivable, church, until we realize that each one of us has the potential to do exactly this. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. Now, ancient Roman writers have recorded for us that loan sharks actually did exactly what Jesus just painted the picture of. In the first century, when the creditors would go to those whom they extended credit to, if they weren't paying them back, they would literally take them by the neck and choke them until blood came out their nose. So Jesus is using a really world image, a first world image for these people who are listening to this story. And the attitude turns your stomach. The amount owed him is not tiny. A denarii is a lot of money for an individual as a common labor in that period of time. This is actually a hundred days wages. So if you got paid a denarii a day, this guy's owed $300, but the amount is nothing in comparison to what's been forgiven him. So you check what's going on here. Jesus is not teaching that offenses against you, offenses against me are insignificant. Although the second debt is small in comparison, it's a debt. The offense is real. People have really wounded you. There's things that have been done against you that are painful, but minute compared to the offenses against God. And has he not freely forgiven us, church? Has he not freely set us at liberty? So human nature has got a check valve here. Because human nature, although we've been totally forgiven by God, by grace, it's by grace that you're saved, although we've been totally forgiven by God, we often act as though we've merited the forgiveness, as though we've done something to earn it. That's why Jesus goes to the next part, verse 29. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Those words should have shocked him. Those are the exact same words he just used with the king. Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Exact same phraseology. Should have shocked him, but they evoke no compassion whatsoever. Verse 30, but he refused. Stop there. Written in the Greek language, 
This means he refused over and over and over again. No, 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 no. I don't care how many times you ask me, I'm not forgiving you. The guy keeps asking, obviously, to be forgiven. And he's saying, no way. Instead, he went and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. So he has him thrown into slavery, into debtor's prison, a poor quality slave sold for 500 denarii, $1,500, and he's not willing to dismiss it. Check this, church. The behavior seems unthinkable. Does it not seem inconceivable that someone could act that way? And that's exactly Jesus' point, church. It's inconceivable that a Christian who's been forgiven a mountain of debt, the sin debt against God, is unwilling to forgive. Watch how it causes the crowd to react. Verse 31, when the other servants saw, and people are always watching you, right? They're watching him. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? It's a pretty critical point in the story here. This first one who owes a billion plus, the king forgives instantly with complete mercy. But when that same one shows himself without any mercy, what does the king call him, church? Wicked, wicked servant. Unforgiveness in a believer is even more wicked because we have infinitely greater reason to be forgiving. And we have infinitely greater power because of the Holy Spirit in us than a person who's never experienced the grace of God. See, it's not that the king expected him to give the guy a chance to repay. He's saying, treat him in the same way I treated you. Have mercy just as I had on you. There's a quote worth remembering. It's the only one in your notes. Lord Herbert was a philosopher who lived in the 1600s, 1500s. And he said this, I wanted you to see his quote on the screen. He who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. It's pretty good. Here's the last two verses. Verse 34, in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. I take it that this man, the first man who's been forgiven this mountain of debt, is a believer. That's Jesus' point in this. He's in the kingdom. He's dealing with the king and the king has an issue on his hands. He's got to deal with somebody who's living as though they haven't been personally forgiven. Check this. Because God is holy, because God is just, he's always moved with anger toward sin. And the verse goes on to say, he was handed over to the torturers. Now, understand what's being said here. Notice first, this is not the executioner. There's a treatment process going on. And you have to put yourself in the mindset of the first century. A torture actually meant an inquisitor, someone who would put you under pressure to some degree, someone who would bring it against you. 
So we're told he's being put under the inquisitor. The Lord God can put his own children under inquisitors, under tortures such as stress, pressure, hardship in your life. For what reason? To bring you back. Because God doesn't discipline his own out of hatred. He disciplines out of love. Hebrews 12, 6 says this, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So he doesn't discipline to drive somebody away. He disciplines in order to bring them back. So let's come full circle around as this ends. In the case of offenses done to you, in the case of wounds that have been delivered to you, what do you do? When a kingdom person forgets the magnitude of their own forgiveness, they can allow themselves to be overcome by evil and return evil for evil. God say, no, time out. You gotta return evil with good. Jesus finishes it by saying, Matthew 18, 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. It's just stunning to me that Jesus sees absolutely no inconsistencies in the action of a father who freely forgives us, yet deals so directly with sin, precisely because he's a God of such overwhelming compassion and overwhelming mercy. He expects us as believers in Christ to be exactly the same. It's the fruit of the Spirit to show the fruit of his spirit. So I got three realities for you. If you think of like picking up a suitcase with a handle on it, let me give you these three realities as though we're putting a handle on this message so you can pick it up and carry it out the building with you. Because the reality is people are gonna continue throughout the course of your life, if they haven't done it to you yet, they will bring things against you. And while you're keeping yourself from being overcome by evil, especially the evil others can and will do to you, you gotta know how to respond. So here's three and they're very, very simple. Here's the very first one. Don't wait. Don't wait for the other person to respond. They may not even know that they've offended you. Don't wait. I've had to deal with this in my own life, thinking certainly they're gonna come and apologize, but no, I, I had to go and extend forgiveness first. So Jesus paints a picture in Matthew chapter five of a church setting. And he says there's a setting in which an individual comes into the synagogue and brings his offering to the altar and sets it down. And Jesus says, if you find in that moment that you've got an offense against a brother or a brother has offended you, leave your offering at the altar. Go and find that one and then come back. It's the only place I can find in the Bible where God says, you know what? Right now I'm not gonna talk with you, I'm out. Until you deal with this issue, you and I are not talking. You go deal with it and then come back. Extend mercy and then you and I can talk. I think that's why Matthew 5, 7 says this, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Here's number two. God's okay with your scars, church. God's got his own scars. Jesus was not afraid to show his wounds to the disciples after the crucifixion not only to evidence who he was, but show the reality of what had been done to him. Look with me on the screen, John 20, 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. 
Obviously, Jesus is proving who he is in that moment. But do you know that when you go to the book of Revelation that we're told that Jesus' wounds are still visible in his hands for all of eternity? Certainly not to validate who he is, but to remind all of those in eternity of the price that he paid. So don't be afraid to let your wounds be visible. You can let others know that you've got those scars. Maybe the one who gave it to you needs to know. They might need to know they're even there. Just don't let those scars define you. Let me remind you what God said about himself and about those scars that you have. We talked about this two weeks ago. Psalm 56, 8. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Isn't that a beautiful thought? God's got a treasure shelf someplace with little jars with all your tears, every wound that's been delivered to you. God knows about it. Here's the third one. Very simple. Forgiving is not forgetting. And as you can imagine, we talked in Saturday night service because of the Q&A aspect to it a lot about these particular things. And one individual raised this particular issue. What, what does that mean? Forgiving is not forgetting. I thought God forgets all our sins. Well, Scripture does say, I separate your sins as far as the east are from the west, and I remember your sins no more. What that's actually saying is he doesn't hold account to you of the things that you have done if you're in Jesus Christ. He doesn't hold them and calculate them. He pushes them away as far as the east is from the west. You're human. You cannot forget. Forgiving is not forgetting. So forgiveness doesn't mean excusing sin. It doesn't mean excusing the offense that's been done to you. Sin is always sin. And you've got to let it be. The reality is love never allows sin to be anything other than what it is. But check this. Forgiveness does, not, does involve letting the bitterness go and letting the anger go. Now, here's the last reality. This is not on the screen. This is just to remember how it impacts all three of those. Heart forgiveness, genuinely releasing the anger and the bitterness is supernatural, isn't it, church? It comes from the Holy Spirit. It has to be a work of God because our human nature wants to say, pay back what you owe me. But God says, no, my spirit is alive and well in you. Use me. So while you're in the midst of praying about that, and you may need to really pray that God releases his Holy Spirit to work through you to forgive someone who's delivered a wound to you. While you're in the midst of doing that, here's what I challenge you to do. Remember the wounds delivered to Jesus and what Hebrews 12.2 says. Therefore, the author and the finisher of our faith, despising the shame, for the joy set before him, he despised the circumstances and he rose above it. You have the victory in Jesus Christ, church. The story has already been finished for you. So God's admonition is rise above it. Put those petty things aside, even though they don't seem petty. Remember the mountain of debt that's been paid for you. I don't know who this was for today. I've told each service that. God pushed on my heart to teach this specifically, and I don't even know why. But I expect maybe it's for all of us just to be reminded as we push through into 2019, 
we got to model Jesus. So let me pray for us that way, church. Would you join me in that? Father, we're asking for something that goes beyond our capacity. Humanly, in our human nature, we want to be like the guy who chokes. But your spirit in us tells us to act otherwise, and your word declares it. So we come before you right now asking that you would put us in that place where we're able to put aside, even allow to shrink out of existence the wounds that have been delivered to us because of what you've done for us. Father, I pray for this for our church in a supernatural way that your Holy Spirit would empower us and that we would know the power of the Holy Spirit working in us this afternoon and tomorrow and next week. And as hard as it's going to be, God, that we would honor you in this. Thank you for the reality that there's a joy set before us. There's an eternity waiting for us. And we're doing the best we can to look like you in the midst of it. So we come before you humbly and ask for your strength. The strength that was delivered to us because of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.